This is my home away from home. <laughs> it's good to see you all again. And I want to thank you because someone told me how much you've been praying. And I need every one of those prayers. So we thank you for them. And my wife and children would love to be here. One day it's going to happen. We're just not at that stage yet. You know, things have to work out. Fruit has to ripen. And sometimes things like this take time. It has to be the right time. We still have little ones in school. So one of these days it will work out. And if the Lord comes first, well, that's even better. Then we don't have to buy airline tickets (laughs) and sit for all those hours. Nine hours and 45 minutes uh, from Madrid to Miami. And then another all day. Leave Miami at 8 in the morning and get here at um, 2 in the afternoon, which is 3, 4, 5. So from 8 in the morning until 5 Eastern time just to get to California. So it's a long way, but it's real short in prayer. In prayer, you move at the speed of thought, and that's faster than the speed of light. (laughs) Let's go right to God's Word. I don't know why. This pulpit feels short to me tonight. Maybe I need to have my glasses changed. (laughs) Things look a long way away. Psalm 130. I love the Psalms, and I think I've at least mentioned this Psalm to you before. But I feel a real uh, burden before the Lord that we should study this psalm tonight. So we're going to do that. Psalm 130, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him there is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We bow in the presence of the most holy God this evening and we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus for the time we can be together, for the liberties we have in this country to meet freely, to study the Word of God, that we have it in our own language. We think about all the people in different countries tonight who do not have this liberty and others who maybe have it but don't have the Scriptures in their language. We think how many blessings have been given to people living in this country. And we know that your word says, to whom much is given, much is required. Much will be required. And so we ask that you would help us now as we look into your word. We are all frail. The human messenger is frail. And we need to hear a word from you. Far above any human voice, we need to hear your voice speaking to us through the scriptures. And so we come and invite you to take that freedom and that right that is yours to to move into our lives, to speak to us, to touch anything in our lives, to speak to us in any way about anything that you see fit. You know us all. And we are different. We have different needs and interests and problems and strengths and weaknesses. And only you can take this book and apply it to each of us tonight in a way that is needed personally. We pray that you will do it and we'll give you the honor and the glory. For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We want to think about what we call desperate prayer or prayer out of the depths because that's what the 
title is, you could take it right from verse 1, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. The best prayer comes from a sense, a strong inward sense of necessity. There's too much boredom and too much ritual in prayer. And there are prayers that we pray as a matter of routine. And there are prayers that we pray when we know we need help. The Pharisee, when he went into the temple and he prayed, he said, I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men. What a boring prayer, if he only knew. He did this every day, we assume. It seemed to be his custom. And you can almost hear a little voice from heaven say, oh, no, here he comes again. It says he prayed thus with himself. <laughs> it's as if God wasn't even paying him. doesn't mean God didn't know what he was saying. It didn't mean he couldn't hear him, but it means he wasn't paying him any attention. His prayer didn't get out of the ceiling, didn't get out of the room he was in. No further. Boring prayer. And then there are prayers like Peter's. That night, when the disciples were rowing across the Sea of Galilee, or trying to, and the wind was contrary, and it says the Lord came to them walking on the water in the fourth watch of the night, which is the wee hours right before morning. It doesn't take that long to get across the Sea of Galilee. We've lived in Israel and been on the sea and driven around the Sea of Galilee and seen it from every angle. And there's no way it can take you from sunset until the wee hours of the morning to row to the other side. Unless, of course, as does happen in that part of the world, the strong winds come down from the mountains and blow. And they're blowing from the west to the east. And the disciples are trying to go from the east to the west. And it took them all night. And it says the Lord came walking uh, on the water to them. And they saw him. They were frightened. And then some of, them, some of them cried out. And then Peter said, Lord, if it's you, I can't wait to ask him if he soon repented of saying those words. He said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you walking on the water. Tell me to come to you on the water. And the Lord said, come. Oh, now he went and created a problem. Because the Lord said, come. He invited him to, and the Lord said, come. So now he had to get down out of the boat. And as hard as that work was in that boat rowing that night, I don't think any of the rest of them said, why did he ask him to come and not me? (laughs) I think they were all pretty glad to stay in the boat. In the middle of a storm, who wants to get out of the only boat on the sea in the storm? And he went walking across the water to the Lord. And it says, immediately, it says, he began to look. At the wind and the waves, that means the effect of the wind. And the waves, he's looking at all the storm around him. And he said he began to sink. He got his eyes off of the Lord. And he got his eyes onto his circumstances and to his problems. And he began to go down. And what did he say? Well, he didn't pray like some of us do. He didn't pray like these folks who, uh, we respect them. And, and we understand, I think, what they're trying to say when they say, God is too holy. And too high, we can't come into his presence. And when they begin to pray, it takes them about 15 minutes to feel that they get into the presence of God. They say, oh, Lord, we are too holy. you are too holy to, for us to speak to you. We cannot come near to you. And they imagine, they believe, I think they're mistaken, but they believe that they're showing piety, godliness in prayer. They're staying away from God. Now, there are sometimes when people need to have a little review of themselves before they go tripping into God's presence. So there's something to be said for the other side of the equation. But these folk don't think that they can come quickly into the presence of the Lord. Now, what on earth would Peter have done that night? If he had to have a 15-minute preamble to his prayer, he would have finished that prayer from Davy Jones' locker. From the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Blub, blub, blub. Never would have gotten to the point. He had time to say one thing. 
Lord, save me. He cried out. And the Lord did it. The Lord didn't give him a lecture. He didn't say, oh, you should have thought of that before you asked me if you could get out of the boat. He saved him. He did say to him later, oh, thou of little faith. Those are two different kinds of prayer. Now, this is kind of like the question, which hand has the marble? But which of those two kinds of prayer do you think we have in front of us tonight? Good. Come to the front of the class. (laughs) Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. The Puritans used to say, Misery wonderfully indoctrinateth the soul in the art of prayer, which is Puritan speak for you don't have to teach a person to pray when he's down and you got problems. Don't need any lessons in prayer, right? The first thing and the, the, you might say the instinctive thing to do is to cry out when you have trouble. And God never rejects a prayer that is earnestly made to him by a soul in need. God listens. You'll listen to the sinner who says, and those two men in the temple that day, that Pharisee thanking God that he wasn't like other men. And what did the other one do? He beat upon his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Remember, we studied that last year. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified instead of the other. God heard that prayer. Does God hear sinners pray? He hears everything that people say. He knows everything that people say. But it's one thing to to listen in the sense of omniscience. To know what they're saying. And it's another thing to attend to their prayers. To receive the petition and consider it and answer it and to give the thing needed. And this is the hope that the psalmist has as he prays here. In prosperity and peace, in times of calm, prayer often suffers. And I'd be willing to bet if I was a betting man that everyone here tonight prays more when they have troubles than when they don't. And you just have to wonder if sometimes God doesn't let trouble come into our lives... Or he doesn't let ourselves work us, let us work ourselves into trouble in order that we might draw closer to him and pray. He has to keep us on a short leash. You don't have to teach a person to pray when he's down. And the psalmist, as we look here at the, these first two verses, is down because he cries out. This is not a ritual prayer. This is not a routine prayer. This is an emergency prayer. This is an SOS prayer. This is a prayer like those prayers that people pray when they need an answer now. They've got to have an answer from the Lord. This is not one of those prayers, Lord bless Fred and Lord bless Jane and Lord bless the missionaries and Lord bless this and Lord. I'm not saying it's wrong to use a list. I have to write things down and go over them because there are too many things and I'm afraid I'll, I'll forget some of them and won't pray for them. But it's another thing to pray about something that you don't need to write down and you've got to have an answer from the Lord. This is SOS prayer. You're not in the depths tonight. You don't have a problem tonight. Thank the Lord. But when it comes, I didn't say if, when it comes, you remember Psalm 130. So let's look at it. We're going to divide it up. Eight verses. That can't take long. All right. I see the clock tonight. We'll see. Adel's laughing. He's been a bad boy all day today. The first two verses we're going to call his cry. The second two verses, three and four, we're going to call his meditation. The third set of two verses, verses five and six, we're going to call his testimony. And then verses seven and eight, we're going to call his exhortation. His cry, his meditation, his testimony, and his exhortation. Four sets of two. So that's it. Any questions? You want more? 
I do too. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. Let's ask the question, even though the answer is right here in front of us. Where was he when he prayed this prayer? Where was he? When he's not talking about being down in the Jordan Valley by the Dead Sea, one of the lowest places on earth, he's not talking about that. Mariana's Trench. He's not talking about a physical depth. He's talking about a problem, a situation in which he needed help, and he couldn't give the answer. He's overwhelmed. He's sunk, mired down in problems or a problem. Something is causing him, driving him to the Lord in prayer this way. And this is what he does. He says, out of the depths have I cried. Let's think about some examples. People in the scripture, and then we want to apply it, of course, to ourselves. Who are some of the people in the scripture who cried out to God out of the depths? There's one. How about Jonah? Literally, now there's, there's a double for you. Literally and physically. The, I mean, um, literally and figuratively. He was in the depths. He was in a real problem for which he had no solution. Incidentally, a problem partly of his own making. And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord answered him. Hannah. It says she poured out her heart before the Lord. She had a problem that she couldn't solve. She couldn't give her husband children. She couldn't solve the problem. Jonah couldn't make the fish throw up. He couldn't get out and get back up to the surface. And a good thing for him, he didn't say, just command the fish to spit me out, Lord. He would have been in the depth still. Let God decide how to do it. Hannah couldn't do anything about her problem. Well, in those days, they didn't have all the medical and scientific means they have today. And I just wonder sometimes if those things aren't a shortcut for prayer. It would be better to pray. What's the first thing we do when we have trouble? Is the first thing pray, or is that the last resort? Come with me to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gather them out of the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. And what? Then, don't skip that, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Verse 10. Such as sit in darkness and the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God, and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. Verse 17. Fools, because of their transgression, and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near into the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord. In their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. Verse 23. They that go down to the sea and ships that do business in great waters. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. 
Now, that's not too difficult to see, is it, when you read it that way? There are a lot of things that are repeated in this psalm. The psalm is like a hymn that has a stanza and a chorus and a stanza and a chorus. The psalm is organized that way. And by the way, uh, we'll have to study this psalm sometime. It's a wonderful psalm that reviews the history of the nation of Israel as well as a lot of practical lessons for ourselves. And this is the practical lesson we're thinking about. This psalm illustrates the problem with people like us who wait until we get in the corner, until the resources run out, until we're at our wit's end, and then we pray. We could have prayed before then. You see, when he repeats this, the idea here is one of the emphases that is falling in this psalm is on the time factor, the timing Then they prayed. When they got their back up against the wall, then they prayed. When they ran out of their own ideas, first they tried everything themselves. And then, as a last resort, they pulled the ripcord and let the parachute come out. After they figured they couldn't fly, then they cried unto the Lord. So Israel learned to do it. Jonah did it. Hannah did it. The nation of Israel did it. We could go on. King Hezekiah. The army of the Syrians is coming up against Jerusalem. They're surrounded. They can't get out. The letter comes to him. And it says, uh, I'll give you horses for the men if you can bring them out and put them on them. He, he knew, the king of Assyria knew, and his minister of information knew that they didn't have enough men to, to make a cavalry. And he was mocking them. You don't have, I have the horses to give you if you have the soldiers to put on them. He says he took the letter and he went into the temple and he says he spread it out before the Lord. He just gave it to the Lord. He prayed. They were in a situation where there was nothing they could do. And God answered their prayers. Jeremiah was put into a pit, into a cistern. They used those. You see that when when you visit places in Europe. I don't know too many cisterns. I suppose there are in the States. But these were, they would have them in the castles and in the old parts of the cities. These huge, they would, they would dig a hole. And uh, then they would have an opening, say, about this big around, like a well with a lid on it. And this, this cistern, this hole in the ground, would collect the rainwater. And sometimes, like on the rock on the mountain of Masada, uh, the Jews uh, built trenches around the rock, the face of the rock of the mountain, so that the, the rainwater would be collected as it ran off the mountain. It would run into these trenches, and then all the trenches in the side of the mountain led to a hole, a cave that they made in the side of the mountain. It's a huge cave, and it was used for one thing, for a cistern, and all the water was put in. Well, in Jerusalem, they had cisterns where they stored the water. And, of course, in times of siege, if these, if these cisterns are not uh, fed by a spring, they're just uh, still water, and the water goes away. They use it. It evaporates, and in the bottom, of course, there's just mud and mire, and they put Jer- Jeremiah for prophesying that they should surrender to the Babylonians who were God's judgment, they put him down in this pit and they left him there to die. Now that was really out of the depths, wasn't it? Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. In that case, not for anything wrong he had done, simply for being faithful to the Lord. And sometimes we get into circumstances where our faith is tried, where the circumstances are very difficult for us, and we haven't done anything wrong. It happens. It can happen as a result of our bad choices. It can happen, as he said in the 107th Psalm, for disobeying and rebelling against the Word of God. But there are times when for being faithful to the Word of God, suffering comes into our lives. 
Peter says, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So Jeremiah had it. What about Paul and Silas? Didn't we study that? We did. And where were they when they prayed and sang hymns at midnight? Well, they weren't here in the Bible chapel. Where were they? In jail, with their feet in the stocks and stripes on their back. And in those days, they didn't have any rights. Well, in Paul's case, you could say he could have claimed his citizenship and gotten out of it, but it was a bit late for that. And there they were. And God answered prayer. God can answer prayer tonight. That same God. When people are in a situation, when your life is going through a phase, a trial, a difficulty, and you don't have an answer, there is an answer. What did he do? Out of the depths, that's where he was. What did he do? He cried unto the Lord. Now that word, and we mentioned that before, is not the same as talking to God. It's one thing to talk. It's another thing to cry out. And you have this over in the book of Judges. Let's go back there and look. Um, Judges chapter 3, where he begins to put before us the cycle of sin and deliverance that Israel fell into as a people. Judges chapter 3, and he uses this word, says in verse uh, 5, for example, of chapter 3, The children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. Let me just uh, make an incision here. They were doing something God told them not to do. He told them in the book of Deuteronomy, Do not learn the ways of the nations. God taught his people from the very beginning That doctrine that no one wants to hear. They didn't want to hear it then and they don't want to hear it now. The doctrine of separation. And I'm not going to apologize for using that word. It's a very biblical doctrine. It's like the man who went down to Jericho has fallen among thieves and been gravely injured, (laughs) gravely wounded. They were told not to do it, but they did it. And so you see, they mingled socially, culturally. Ah, but we, we know what we believe. And pretty soon, it says, they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their, son, gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals, Balaam, and the groves. That means the the orchards and the groves of trees where they, they set up their idols. We won't go into all of that right now. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathayim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel. It took them eight years. Eight Years to cry unto the Lord. Now, we're thinking about this, the cry of the psalmist. I don't think he waited eight years. You know, this is one of the things I love about the psalms because the psalms teach me how to pray. And they teach me how to think. They're not, they're a hymn book. They are. They're the hymn book of Israel. But they're an instruction book for us. They give us the language of prayer and they, and they give us a tract 
for our thoughts, how we should think, what track our thoughts should run on when we're in difficulties, when we're rejoicing. Every kind of situation in life is contemplated in the book of Psalms, directly or indirectly. There we have the language of prayer. You see, it says the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. I don't think the psalmist waited eight years, but they did. And I'll tell you, if you have eight years to wait, God does. If you have 20 years, he has 20. If you have 40, he has 40. You want to wait all your life? He can wait. You and I can't. We're frail. We're nothing. We're like the the flower of the grass. Springs up and, and blooms in the morning and in the afternoon it's dried, withered and dried and gone. What is your life? The scripture says is nothing. It's a breath. It's a tale told in the night. It's the weaver's loom going back and forth. It's over so quick. And sometimes we can be so stubborn. And sometimes it may not be stubbornness. It may be misdirection. And sometimes it may simply be self-pity. Some people would rather feel sorry for themselves and have other people feel sorry for them than to cry out to God and get it over with. Don't ask me why. It's just one of those strange quirks of human nature that sometimes, and you'll excuse me for saying this, sometimes we do some really stupid things. No brainers. <laughs> Says the children of Israel, when they cried unto the Lord, he delivered them. Come on down a few more verses. Verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the, Eglon, the king of Moab. Against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of the palm trees. That's Jericho. Uh, so the children of Israel served Eglon, and the king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. Eighteen years. You would never do that, would you? Shake your head no with me. You would never wait no. That's why it says in the book of Romans that the things that happened to them were written to us for an example, for our instruction, for our warning to educate us. Because God knows that the story of the Old Testament is not simply information about the dispensation of the law. God knows that we need the lessons of the Old Testament. I worry about people who never read the Old Testament. Two-thirds of the Bible. I don't really know how they can understand correctly the New Testament if they don't, have, they don't take into consideration. And if you haven't read the Old Testament, well, you need to set yourself a goal and start right away. So many lessons like this. We're talking about crying to God in prayer. And the testimony of Scripture is... That God is a God who knows how to answer. He has power and wisdom to answer desperate prayer. The problem is not on the side of God. The problem is with us. We wait eight years. We wait 18 years. We wait 20 years. And some people go to their grave arguing with God or complaining or feeling sorry for themselves when it could have all been over. The short and quick solution is to humble yourself and cry out to God. Recognize that you're in the depths. Call it what it is. I'm down. Call it what it is. And cry out to the Lord. 
in heaven. I thank God for this psalm because this psalm says that God answers prayer, the prayers of people who get themselves into desperate situations. And even when it's their fault, like it was in the book of Judges, and even when they waited too long and he could have said, oh, now you come knocking on my door, Uh uh-huh. But he didn't do that. And he doesn't do that. And when you come to God, humble, when we do that, and we seek his help, he doesn't begin by giving us a lecture on how we should have come earlier. See, that's what we do to each other. And when someone comes and asks our forgiveness, ooh, the temptation is great to first give him a little lecture and remind him of how much hurt he caused us. Isn't it a wonderful thing to go to a brother or a sister with something like that and on your heart and you finally reach the place where you, you say, I just need to ask to be forgiven. I don't need to say, and no confession that begins with the word if is a legitimate confession. If I offended you in any way, I'm sorry. That's not a confession. That's baloney. If a person has something to confess, he knows what it is. I spoke in a harsh tone. I became angry. I failed to keep my promise. I'm sorry I offended you by doing this or that. I know this hurt. Please forgive me. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's the short way out. (laughs) See. Isn't it wonderful when you come to someone that way and they say, and I know a brother who always does this. He says, oh, forgiven and forgotten. And that's the end of it. You never hear anything again. Forgiven and forgotten. He has a good forgetter. (laughs) He doesn't give him a lecture. He says, forgiven and forgotten. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if, as a church, we make this commitment before the Lord, each of us, individually and collectively, to just practice this. To be humble Christians who are able to say, never to say, don't ever let any of us say, if I offended you in any way, I'm sorry. Let us always say what we did that we know is the problem and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. There's no need to go on and on and say, I was wrong, I know, but in this situation, you know, I couldn't, and there we go, justifying, explaining why we did it as if that gave us any points. Just take the low road and the short road and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And if when that happens, the ones who are on the receiving end could say, brother, sister, forgiven and forgotten. And that's the end of it. And never bring it up again and say, "Uh uh-huh, but you know, you always do this. And that's the 13th time you do. Because ever since the year so-and-so. God doesn't do that with us. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. He came to someone who would hear him. And he cried out that expression, uh, that SOS expression in prayer. Lord, I need help. Lord, I need help. And he got it. And that's what we should do when we have problems. It doesn't say when you have problems, you take your life. Or you take pills. Pills to make you calmer. Pills to make you happier. They didn't have any of those. They didn't have a third of the science we do, the technology that we do. They were a lot happier than we were. We are the most educated an arrogant and miserable generation I think that has ever lived on the face of the earth. 
You think these people envy us and say, Lord, why wouldn't you let us live in the 21st century? I think they're glad they didn't have to. (laughs) But every generation has problems. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. Call on the Lord. And maybe I'm speaking to someone tonight who needs to do just that. First of all, recognize where you are. I'm in the depths. And stop trying to manipulate, to finagle, to arrange things. Stop trying to fly and pull the ripcord. <laughs> Help. Help, Lord. That's what he's saying. Help me, Lord. He doesn't tell us what the problem is. Well, I like that. Some people don't. They read the psalm and they say, Yeah, but he never really says what the problem And they go on and on like those people who read in John, you know, where it says, The Lord knelt down and he wrote with his finger in the dirt. And all the men, from the oldest to the youngest of them, began to go away. And they've completely missed the point. I don't know, I might step on some toes here saying this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. The point is not what he wrote in the dirt. You don't know what he wrote, and I don't know what he wrote. We don't know that he wrote the names of the men. We don't know that he wrote the commandments. We don't know that he wrote the names of the women that those men had been with. Out of wedlock. We don't know what he wrote. But everybody has a theory. And they go on and on about what Jesus wrote in the dirt. That's not the point. And the point here is not what caused the problem. What was his prayer request? The point is anybody, anytime, who's in the depths, who's got their back against the wall, who has a problem, has a place to go if they are a believer in the God, the living God of the Bible. You have a place to go. God hears and answers desperate prayer. And don't let your shame and don't let your conscience that tells you that you should have done it earlier or that it's your own fault for getting you in, for making bad decisions and getting yourself into this situation. Don't let anything like that, don't let anything, you hear me? Don't let anything keep you from praying. Nothing out of the depths have I cried unto thee. He cried unto the Lord. He knew who to talk to. It doesn't say, out of the depths, I went to the psychologist. (laughs) Well, maybe he did. If the psyche is the soul, not according to Freud's definition, not according to Maslow or Rogers or or any of the others, uh, if the psyche is the soul, if he's saying uh, that God is the master physician, the one who's able to heal, okay, But we know when they talk about psychology, they don't mean that. That's a human invention that was raised up to take the place of the biblical view of man and of the biblical reason for people's problems and of the biblical solution for people's problems. See? So out of the depths, what do you do? Start a recovery group. How about go to the Lord in prayer? We are great organizers and poor prayers. Out of the depths, I started a website so everybody could know about my problems. And you can only say that in our time, you know. And I put all my complaints and criticisms up there so everybody could navigate to it. And I filed my website with Yahoo and Google and everybody else so they could get right in there and find it fast. No, because I cried unto the Lord. Out of the depths, I wrote to my congressman. No, I cried unto the Lord, it says. I guess I'm just a simple, ignorant old preacher. I just believe that people with serious problems ought to pray. 
and give God a chance to show that he's got better answers than anybody else. He cried unto the Lord. And you see, this is the thing. He says, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. He said, now listen, Lord, I really need you to listen to me right now. Copy? It's like he's saying it that way, you know. I really need you to listen. Everybody needs people to listen. That's one of the chief complaints in marriage situations where there are conflicts and difficulties in marriage. If it's not money, one of the other chief irritants is the lack of communication. He doesn't listen to me. Not a word I said. Honey, can I do this and this? What do you think about this and this and this? Uh Uh-huh. From behind the newspaper. Or like uh, one man said, if you have anything to say to me, please, during the commercials. (laughs) Not listening. And people need to be listened to. They need to be heard so desperately they're willing to go pay $150, $200 an hour or half hour just to talk to a counselor or someone who will listen to them. That what they're really paying for more than anything else is for someone to listen to them. And, and for someone, when they have something to say, to let them finish saying it, not to interrupt them. To just listen, to patiently listen and let them express themselves. And he says, Lord, I really need you to listen to me. Hear my voice. Isn't it a wonderful thing to have God to go to in a situation like that? You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to go up to one of those things and pull out your number, ooh, 264, and it says, now serving number 38. No. I got help right now. Right now. It's a wonderful thing to be able to come to God. What do people do who don't believe in God? What are the agnostics and the atheists? I guess they go to the $250 an hour. Do those counselors who uh, sit back in their chair and then say with uh, Rogerian excellence to them, what do you think you should do? We have to pay for that? That was what Carl Rogers believed, and, and he wasn't alone, that all the answers are basically inside the person. They're all there, all the solutions. And that the counselor doesn't really have to um, tell him anything. He doesn't have to be, um, I forget what word he used, but he, they call it non-directive counseling. You just have to help the person bring it out, bring it to the surface. You know? What do you think you should do reflecting on this? And, and you just uh, ask questions. And make suggestions and hope that the person will come to the realization of what he should do. Because uh, that might work in America. Because in America, a lot of people don't like to be told what to do. That, they have what they call that passive-aggressive behavior. You know, you tell them what to do and immediately they want to do the opposite thing. <laughs> so you see, he says, let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. He knows he's talking to someone who can hear him and he needs to be heard. He needs to be able to explain himself, to express himself, and to know that someone's listening to him. But now, I want to take the other side of this for a minute. We like to be heard, don't we? We like to know that someone's listening. And when there's a discussion, uh, everyone likes to have equal time to present their point of view. And sometimes we have to say to people, okay, now, I listen to you. Now, listen to me. Just listen. Whether you agree or not, just let me say what I'm thinking or feeling. We do that, don't we? What about God? We want Him to listen to us. Has God ever interrupted you when you prayed? Other things and people interrupt us. 
That's why he says when you pray, go into your closet, some versions say, but the word there really is, a, is the word for a dispensary, for that uh, sort of a walk-in closet in a house or storage room where they kept things, where they kept the supplies. That's really the word. I don't know what you call that anymore in, in English. We call it the dispensa in Spanish, where they keep the, the flour and the boxes and the olive oil and all the things. That, that little closet or part of the kitchen, they call it the dispensa. Well, that word, what? Thank you. See, I've lost it in English. <laughs> the pander. That really is a, a better translation of that word in Matthew 6. That's what it means. Go into the room where the supplies are and pray. Now, that's a double meaning. You see, it means, first of all, shut the door. He says, when you've entered, shut the door. Keep the distractions away so you don't get interrupted when you pray. But the other thing it means is, and the double meaning there is, that's where the supplies are. Go in there and get them in prayer. Go to the place where the supplies are, meaning you go in there and you talk to the Lord. He's got the supplies. He's got the answers. So there's a double meaning there. Well... It's a wonderful thing to have that place to go to. He says, hear my prayers. And the Lord says, uh-huh, that's what I'm talking about. How about you hear me too? Psalm 81. Psalm 81. Verse 10. I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice and Israel would none of me so I gave them up to their own hearts lust and they walked in their own counsels oh that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries the haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him but their time should have endured forever he should have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. The Lord says, I wish they had listened. I wish they had heard my voice. Well, because they wouldn't listen, he says, I let them do what they wanted to. And that happens. Some people would rather argue with God than listen to, hey, can't I do this? Does there any place in the Bible that really says you can't smoke? Uh, they say, why can't we do why can't I do this why can't I do that and they're just full of it they're always arguing and looking for some modification the Lord says alright go on you don't want to listen if you listen to me he says I have things to say to you I have a way to teach you to walk to live that will bring blessing to your life and he said and then if you had listened to me not just hearing me but heeded what I said and that's really the idea here if you had paid attention and done what I said, he said, then you would have been blessed. And the Lord says, well, I wanted to bless them. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. <sighs> We're our own worst enemies. If we just shut up and listen sometimes. And you know, there's that little thing in human nature. We're afraid we're going to be told we need to do something we don't want to do. We already have a plan. And so we come to God and say, we want to talk to him and explain to him. Okay, Lord, now here's what I want to do. See, I've got it all figured out how I can do everything I want to do and please you too. So I want to do this and this. The Lord says, listen. And how many times we do that? Even in the church. You know, we, we talk to our elders, to our pastors, and we say, now, we don't ask for advice. 
we come as lawyers, uh, we call them in Spanish, uh, abogados sin carrera. Now, what would that be in English? A lawyer, an unlicensed lawyer, I guess. A lawyer who hasn't studied law. Barracks lawyers, that's it. That's what they used to call them in the military. Barracks lawyers. So we come and we want to lay it all out and argue and present, what, oh, this is what I want to do, and I don't see any reason why I can't do this and that. And the Lord says, why don't you just listen? Let me counsel you. Let me show you. Let me teach you the way. Be a learner and a follower. Not one of those sheep that's always going astray and turning everyone to his own way. See, so if they just would have listened. Oh, they wouldn't listen, so I gave them up to their own heart's desire. That's what that word is. Go do what you want to. Go on. That's punishment. You hear what I'm saying? That's punishment. That's not on the list of the ten most wonderful answers to prayer. And God punishes us sometimes. He chastises us sometimes by letting us go do what we want to. And sometimes we have to do it. Say, go on. Go do it. You'll have time to repent. Go do it. They walked in their own counsels. They gave themselves advice. They told themselves what they wanted to do. And they followed their advice. But they wouldn't follow the Lord's advice. So this is my point, you see. We come to the Lord in prayer, like in, a, in Psalm 130, and we say, Hear my voice. And the Lord says, Uh-huh, that's what I'm talking about. Hear my voice. So you might have gotten out of this problem. Or you might have had it solved a lot sooner if it wasn't of your own making. If you would listen to me, if you would cry out to me and listen to me. Hear my voice, he says. That's not the only place. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48, verse 17. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go, all that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Man limits God's blessing by not paying attention to him and by disobeying his word. See, if we come to God and say, listen to me when I pray, and we want him to listen to us, this is what we're saying. That the flip side of that is... It's our job also to listen to God. And this is one of the greatest problems that the professing people of God have had in any age of time is that we are so full of our own ideas and our own desires and our own counsels and our own arguments and our own rhetoric that we don't listen to God. We don't pay attention. The instructions that he has to give to us are often so simple. So uncomplicated if we would just listen. And so we want God to listen to us and thank God he does. But you know what? He listens to us more than we listen to him. How can I listen to God? By reading his word and keeping my mind on it. Not reading his word and thinking at the same time I'm reading it about the shopping I got to do. Or the problem I got to solve at work. Or the program I want to watch as soon as I get done. Or all the things I have to do that day. Or whatever else. Some problem or person or thing that irritated me or bothered me or worried me. To read his word and listen. To calm my soul before him. And let him speak. 
and not be like that man with the newspaper and his wife's talking to him and explaining something. He says, uh-huh. He hasn't heard a word she said. He just waits for the pauses in the sound and then says, uh-huh, or yes, dear, or whatever. But we do that with God. We do it. And I say, again, that if we appreciate the fact that God listens to us when we pray, maybe we can appreciate how important it is for us to listen to him, to not be too busy, to listen to him, to take time to get still and quiet before him, to get everything else out, and to concentrate on what his word is saying. Give God time to speak to you. Don't make him make an appointment with you. Because you might not like the way he does that. Luke 6, verse 47. It says, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. That's the one who hears his sayings and does them. It means he hears, he pays attention. He heeds what the Lord has to say. The Lord loves that. A true disciple is someone who listens, who pays attention to what God has to say, who learns from it, who learns from his word, and who lets it change his life. We don't need to find a little space in our life, some hour here or there, where we accommodate God into our schedule, our career plans, our goal, life goals. It's not that. We need to listen to him and let him take control of our lives. The plan should be all his. And that's the joy, the real joy in the Christian life is letting God show us what his plan for our lives is. Most people talk to the guidance counselor in school more than they about what they want to do. They take their cues from the television and from the theater and from their the the society around them, what people think and do and want and dream about being and having. They take all of their cues from them. And their whole life is molded by that instead of saying, okay, now I'm a believer. God has a plan for my life. I'm going to come to his word and say, Whatever you want to do, Lord, is okay with me. What did, the, what did the old priest Eli say to Samuel? He came to him and he woke him up in the night and he said, You called me. I didn't call you. Go lay down. Goes away and pretty soon old Eli's snoring again. And pretty soon there's that hand again, that little hand shaking him. Did you call me? I didn't call you. Go lay down, Samuel. And he comes again. Finally, it begins to dawn on old Eli that if there's nobody else there and someone's calling him and it isn't him, maybe it's the Lord. And he says, the next time it happens, say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Now, that's what we need to say. We need this part that we're seeing in the psalm. 130. We need to be able to come to God and know that he hears us and we have it in the authority of his word that he does. He hears us. He listens to us. We communicate with him by prayer. But he needs for us to listen to him too. You see. And we spend, often we spend more time talking 
than listening. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Hebrews 2 says we ought to give the more earnest attention to the things which we have heard. Hebrews 2.1 Lest at any time we should let them slip. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. Is very important. And from one end of the scripture to the other, we have this concept. We have this principle being taught to us that if we want to live a life that is guided and blessed by God, we have to learn to listen with attention to what he is saying. So he says, the psalmist says, Hear my voice, be attentive. But let us not forget that God wants us to do the same thing. And maybe God is saying that to someone here tonight. You want me to listen to you. Okay, but let me tell you this. It's time for you to start listening to me. Listen. I want to know that you're listening to me and paying attention to what I tell you in my word. So this is the cry of the psalmist. He doesn't tell us what his problem is. No use trying to figure it out because we don't know. There is a hint that it might have had something to do with forgiveness of sin because we come to his meditation in verses 3 and 4, and he says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Now, it could be that there was something in the psalmist's life that he was crying out to the Lord that he knew he had done wrong and he needed to be forgiven. That's a possibility. But all we can say at best is that that's a conjecture. He could simply be reflecting on the fact that the only reason God uh, listens to any of us when we pray is because he is a forgiving and merciful God. He could simply be thinking about that. See, This is his meditation. What if God made a little a list of all the things he didn't like about us? Well, some people do that, you know. Some men have made a list and given it to their wife or reviewed it with their wife to say, you know, these are all the things you do that irritate me that I don't like. I, well, maybe that doesn't sound like a fairy tale to you. I don't know. Things like that really happen. And people in churches, when they sometimes a person is just so full of his own will and what he wants to do, and so to justify himself or herself for what they're going to do, they plan a, a preemptive strike by first making a list of all the complaints and criticisms they have about that church and what th- people do and don't do and so forth. And then, <sighs> then they feel justified in whatever it was they were planning on doing. What if God made a list like that? What if everybody else in the church made a list of the things that, that you do that they don't like? Ooh, what kind of a fellowship would that be? If God marked iniquities, who would stand? Malachi chapter 3 says he will come suddenly to his temple and says, Who shall stand before his appearing? And the Lord went into the temple and began to purify it. He did it once at the beginning of his public ministry and again at the end of his public ministry. When he began to purify the temple, who stood? They were all out. All of them. Priests, Levites, worshipers, everybody was out. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up, has consumed me, the scripture says. They remembered the script, that scripture as they saw what he did. 
Well, the Lord does mark iniquities, I'm sorry to tell you. He tells us in his word the things that we do that irritate him. (laughs) Mark chapter 7. And we could go on, but I'm just going to read that one for an example. You could go to Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, and read about the books of works where everything we've done is written down. But Mark chapter 7 says, And he said, That which cometh out of the man, verse 20, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from the evil society around us. Is that what it says? All these evil things come from within and defile the man. The Lord said, that's what irritates me. That's what I don't like. That's what I hate because it says God hates unrighteousness. He hates wickedness. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He does. So let's not have a half God that God is love. I'm very glad he is. I'm very glad. But the same God who loves the sinner, hates sin. And it's not an attribute to be hidden, swept under the carpet and avoided like uh, some kind of a family problem, the, the family drunk that we're ashamed to let anyone know about. It's not a problem for God to hate. It's not a problem for God to have anger. Uh, our anger is wrong because it's selfish. That's why he has to tell us, be angry without sinning because we don't often know how to do that. Our anger is mostly Selfish, egotistical, carnal. God's is holy and righteous. He tells us. Long list in scripture of things that are iniquities. But that's not what he's talking about here. He said, now, if as a person approached you, you said, you can't come into my presence and talk to me because of this and 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 this. If you uh, made a sinless and perfect life a requirement for people to converse with you, who would talk to you? For people to draw near to you? Who would draw near to you? Who would have fellowship with you? Who could stand? We'd all be disqualified is what he's saying. So what does God do? Since uh, no one's perfect, does God say, well, of course I wouldn't do that. Because after all, God is love. I am love. Is that what God says? Is that his answer? To just love everyone and everything. Is that the answer? that's, That's not a correct way to explain the answer. Because the answer given here is, but there is forgiveness with thee. The way for sinful people, imperfect people, to have fellowship and communion with God, to draw near to him and know that he listens to them and cares for them is to come on the basis of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. See, For us to be forgiven, there has to be a sacrifice. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. There can't be any forgiveness without the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
There is forgiveness with thee, he says, that thou mayest be feared. So the first way, the very first step, I should say, in approaching God and knowing that he hears us and will answer our prayers is to be certain of our relationship with him. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the psalmist says in Psalm 116, the Lord will not hear me. He who covers his sin will not prosper, Proverbs 28, 13. But the one who confesses and forsakes it will have mercy. See, God loves to be merciful. But God is not like us. God doesn't just say, well, let's just forget about that. Well, who? nobody's perfect. God doesn't say that. Where there's a problem, where there's a sin, there needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be something to take away that sin. There needs to be a coming to God, a confessing and a forsaking and a finding of mercy in him. You see, and the psalmist is certain of that. There is forgiveness with thee. If it was a sin that he needed to be forgiven for, he was sure he could find it with God. With thee there is forgiveness. With you. God can do that. <laughs> couldn't have done that with a psychologist, could he? The psychologist can't say, all your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace. He says, your half hour or your hour is up. That'll be so much. And uh, make your appointment for the following week on the way out. And there was a control group, and this was uh, told by a man uh, who was president of the American Association of Psychologists. He said that in a control group, and I've forgotten the number of people. Let me just, uh, as I say that, make a number. Let's say there were uh, 20 people in the control group and and 20 other cases. The the 20 people in the control group, uh, uh, those people who didn't go in for professional counseling got through their problems and went on with life and did better than the ones who did. The other ones tended to find under professional counseling that they had more problems than they thought they had and that they needed to go back for more counseling and there seemed to be no end to it. It just went on and on because it's it's the way we make money. It's a business. There is forgiveness with God. And you see... They don't like to call it sin. So if you don't like to call it sin, then how how can it be solved? See, it's not sin, they say. It's a a social problem. It's a genetic problem. It's a hereditary problem. It's a... God says it's sin. And if you call it what God calls it, then you can have what God offers. And God offers forgiveness. He wipes the slate clean and you don't get another slate. It's all gone. All gone. Isn't that wonderful? And you don't have to pay X amount of dollars an hour for that. And you don't have to go for multiple sessions. There is forgiveness with thee. Not to go out and do it again, he says, but that you may be feared. That doesn't mean to be afraid. It means to be treated with reverence, with gratitude, with awe. A person can draw near to God as we do oftentimes at the Lord's Supper when we come on Sunday and we say, who am I to be here? Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And we just feel that gratitude. And we just, as we think about what God did, 
punishing Christ for our sins on the cross at Calvary and all that took place there, and we just sit in awe and we say, we don't say, oh, oh, that's it. God forgives my sins in Jesus. Well, that just means I can go out and sin however I want to, doesn't it? That's not what that means. And no one who believes in Christ for forgiveness of sins feels like he can go out and sin anytime he wants to. My sin put Jesus on the cross. I don't want to do that again. That's what caused his suffering. And the root of all my problems. Why do I want a bad friend like that hanging around in my life? see there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared so that's his meditation and then he comes to the testimony says I'm waiting and that's the word repeated in verses 5 and 6 over and over I'm waiting I wait for the Lord my soul doth wait and in his word do I hope my soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning I say more than they that watch for the morning He says, so I come to the Lord, I cry out to him, and I'm waiting for the answer. I'm waiting on him. Sometimes we get the instant answer. And I will assure you that every time we really need it that fast, we get it that fast. Every time. Sometimes God makes us wait when we don't want to because there's something terribly impatient about our nature. So, he says, I wait. I pray, I cry out, and I wait. For the answer. I don't do like those people, those kids. I did that when I was growing up. We didn't know what else to do and we were bored. Three or fours would run around to the neighbor's house. We'd ring the doorbell and run and hide. So when the lady comes and opens the door, no one's there. We're all peering from the shrubbery across the street. <laughs> laughing. She's opening the door and looking around. And my brother Ken, he never did that. See? <laughs> but I did, I confess. And worse things than that. You see, we're that way about prayer a lot of times. We're like little children. We ring the doorbell and we don't wait for the answer. Before the answer ever comes, we run off and we're doing something else. Wait for the answer. I wait, he says. My soul doth wait. Not like that little boy in the doctor's office who ran around and disturbed everyone. And his mother said, sit down finally. Not many parents do that anymore. Sit down, she said. And she gave him that look that meant, or, mm-hmm-hmm. And, and that's about all you can do in public anymore is say, mm-hmm. But she gave him that look, and so he sat down, and then he announced defiantly from his seat, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. He says, I wait for the Lord, and what? On the inside. Deep down inside me. It's not just that physically I'm stuck waiting for an answer. He says, my soul's waiting. I know how to wait on the inside too. That's like saying, I'm waiting. I need the answer. I'm waiting, but I'm not fidgeting. I'm not boiling on the inside. My soul is waiting. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to learn to keep your soul under control. To find out that that beast of emotions that's in us has reins. It can be controlled. We don't just have to get on bareback and ride wherever it takes us. It's got controls. We're not at the mercy of our emotions. My soul waits. And he says, and in his word, 
do I hope. And there he brings it out how he listens to God and what directs him in prayer and what guards and guides his thoughts and his emotions. As far as the answer is concerned, he says, in his word do I hope. I'm hoping in the promises of God and I'm waiting for a word from him. It's like saying, and I'm waiting for him to answer and whatever he says, I'm going to do it. We don't often do that. Or sometimes we do. And one time when the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians and the, and the Babylonians had set up a king or a, not really a king, a governor, we could say, uh, to govern the, the ones who were left, uh, Jeremiah among them. And then they uh, sort of left them to their own designs. And some of the, the refugees or the, the remainers rose up and killed the man that the Babylonians had made as governor. And then they all got worried. They said, oh, now what are we going to do? The Babylonians are coming after us. We'll have to leave. They went to Jeremiah. They said, Jeremiah, now we're going to Egypt. We want to go to Egypt. But we want you to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord if we should go down into Egypt. And they said, and whatever the Lord says, we'll do it. So it said, Jeremiah went and he prayed. And the Lord told him, and he came back, and he said to the people, Thus says the Lord. It's like saying, read my lips. Do not go down into Egypt. And they said, oh, he, it was longer than that. I'm just giving you the short version. He said, and they said, oh, that's not the word of the Lord. Oh, God didn't say that. You're just making it. You're just prejudiced. You don't want to go down there. You don't want to go to Egypt. So in the end, they made him go down with them. And I think they were sorry they did that because when they got there, then he gave them another prophecy about what was going to happen down in Egypt. You see, that's the way we are. If we get an answer from God's word, if it's there and we don't like it, then we say, oh, but that's just your interpretation. Oh, that's not the word of the Lord. Oh, you're just prejudiced against this or that, or you just don't want me to do this. Or In his word do I hope. I'm waiting for him to speak. Would you be willing to say tonight to God, before you know the answer from his word, that whatever he tells you in his word, you'll do it? Whatever he teaches you in his word, you'll do it? Even if it, it's not what you planned on doing, would you be willing to put it all on the table that way with God? Or is there something you're hanging on to? My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning, he says. More than they that watch for the morning. He repeats it for emphasis. He said, I really am on the inside. My soul is waiting. I am attent and watching like those people who pull in the graveyard shift and they're waiting. Those who watch for the morning, those temple guards, they shut the doors of the temple at night and they watch through the night. Now they're waiting for the morning to come so they can open the doors, the gates of the temple, and they can go and rest. They have those people or the watchmen on the walls of the city and the gates of the city, however you want to look at it, in any of those ways. And they're saying, I'm waiting for the morning. Boy, I remember that when I was in the service. We had those all-night shifts. Boy, it just seemed like those hours between 4 and 7 in the morning went backwards. They would never get over. We were so glad to get out of there. And I think we just sat and watched that clock to make sure the second hand was still moving. We wanted to get out. We were watching for the morning, ready to get out. And he says, I'm waiting for the Lord to answer. I'm hoping in his word and on the inside I'm waiting, anxiously desiring his answer. I don't see how God can refuse to answer a person who prays and waits like that. 
So he says that's his testimony. That's what he's doing on the outside and on the inside. And then he gives them his exhortation. And the exhortation, just briefly in verses 7 and 8, he says, you know what? He says that's what you need to do. Let Israel, because the psalmist was an Israelite. So he's speaking now to the, to the rest of the people of God. We can apply this to ourselves. We can say, the people of God in our time. He says, now, this is what I'm doing. I cry to the Lord. I come to him hoping in his forgiveness. I fear him. That is, I reverence him. And I wait for him on the outside and on the inside. I'm hoping in his word and waiting. He said, let everybody else do that too. Let anyone who calls himself one of the people of God do that too. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. He's a merciful God. Merciful to forgive our sins, to redeem us. And when he gives it, he doesn't give it like people do. He doesn't make you go to confession every week. See, and it's always from here back in time, what you did before. And if you go uh, through the Golden uh, Gate uh, in the Vatican or you make the pilgrimage to the cathedral in Seville or some other place, whatever they happen to be telling you to do that year, uh, you do it. You're forgiven for everything. You get a plenary indulgence. That means a complete indulgence. All your sins from that point backward in time are forgiven. It never goes forward. It's never complete forgiveness. They string you out and keep you there. You need it. You need the priest. You need the church. You need the sacraments. You can't have any kind of relationship with God without them. It's strung out that way, you see. You never know that all your sins are forgiven. They give it to you with eyedroppers. He says, with the Lord there is mercy and plenteous redemption. He forgives everything. In one moment of time, a person who trusts in him is completely forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? Redeemed. Not partially. But now here's the, the prophetic side of this is. He shall redeem Israel, he says, from all his iniquities. I don't know what people do when they say there's no future for Israel. And they begin to tell us, and, and the fact that we believe that Israel uh, is and will be, again, uh, has been and will be chosen by God to be his people. They are his people. They're, they've been cut off because of unbelief. Romans 11 says they'll be grafted back in and blessed again. And how can we believe that? We can believe it because the scripture promises that God will forgive all of Israel's sins. He will redeem them, see? From all his iniquities. The fact that we believe that Israel occupies that privileged place doesn't mean we have to be in agreement or applaud everything that the present government in Israel does. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean this. God has a future for that people. And God doesn't make promises and then not keep them. And he said he gave them the land forever. He said that. And he said that though they were spread out and scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth, he said he would bring them in again from the east and the west and the north and the south. 
and he would bless him. He said he would do it. And if sin is the problem, he said he would redeem him from all of his iniquities. See? So God's got the resources to handle whatever the problems of Israel might be. But I'll tell you this. He has the resources to handle whatever your problems might be too. No problem is too big for God. Except there's one problem that he won't solve for you. Now everyone's listening to see if I'm going to say a heresy. Unbelief. Unbelief. God will not make you believe. And if you don't believe, if you don't trust him, that's your problem. God never forces people to do that. He'll respect your decision to your own sorrow. He'll let you walk in your own counsel. But if you want to be forgiven, if you want to have help, there's a place. And there's a person. There's someone who's powerful. He can forgive all iniquity. Who has plenty of redemption. Who has mercy. Who has forgiveness. And who listens. And then let us not be like that people that took so long to pray. Let God never have to say about us, after this and this and this and this, then they humbled themselves and prayed. Then they finally cried out to the Lord. You say, oh, but I'm already there. I've already done that. Okay? Then it ends tonight. Call on him. Say, now it ends. Call on the Lord. Give God the place and the time, the opportunity now to give you an answer. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. We thank you that out of the depths we can cry unto you in desperate circumstances, in difficult circumstances. You are the God who hears. You're full of mercy and forgiveness and redemption. We thank you for your great power. We thank you for your love and your interest in us, that you're willing to listen to us. Many times, and we don't deserve to be listened to, such is your mercy. We do want to pray tonight two things. That you will, first of all, teach us to pray like this. And second, that you will teach us to listen to you like we want you to listen to us. That we will heed your word. That we will be hearers of it and doers of it. Help us and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.